You're listening to The Jewish Truth Bomb with Lenny Goldberg. Hey, this is Lenny Goldberg, and thank you for joining me. October 7th has changed the way a lot of people in Israel think about things. Things that were, you know, move on may love. Things that were taken for granted. Things that everybody held as a given. That's now kind of changed. Because we all felt that the IDF was infallible as far as protecting us from a Holocaust type of situation. I mean, what do we always do? We brought everybody to Yad Vashem, right? That's what Israel does. Every visitor comes to Yad Vashem to show them what happened to us and why we need an Israel so it doesn't happen again. And how many times have prime ministers of Israel gone over to Europe or to Auschwitz or to one of the concentration camps and said, the tragedy is that the state of Israel came into existence a couple of years too late. If the state of Israel had been around, there never would have been such a thing. Well, nobody will say that now because what happened on October 7th, well, it wasn't on the scale of a Holocaust, but it taught you this, that it could happen. Anything could happen. If Jewish babies can be put into ovens before their mother's eyes, well, that means that anything can happen. And so a major myth has been exploded in everybody's eyes. And if you were paying attention, this has been going on for a while. What about two years ago when the Arabs were rioting in Lud and Ramle and Akko and the Jewish residents there were hunkering down into their houses and there was no cops and there were no police and no idea of soldiers to save them. In the end, it was the hilltop youth from Yitzhar who came to save them and to protect them. And so little by little, we're starting to understand we can't rely on the IDF to protect us. Now, if you know that the Arabs of Gaza and the Arabs of Samaria and the Arabs of Jerusalem, they're all the same. There's no real difference between what they think about Jews and the Jewish state. That means everybody's in danger and everybody's trying to get a gun, right? And the settlements are working really hard to bolster their local response teams, the Kitot Kananut, because everybody knows that's the only way to repel a terrorist attack, the local response teams. What, are you going to wait for the IDF to show up after the Arabs massacred half the Yishuv? And so donations are coming in from outside of Israel to buy drones to help those first responders in these settlements because everybody knows that that's what counts. Everybody knows that if you have to rely on the IDF, you're in big trouble. And it's also a no-brainer that the Arabs around these settlements, they outnumber us big time. Just by their sheer numbers, they can overrun a, a settlement and overwhelm it. Not with the weapons that the Hamasniks had from Gaza, just axes and knives, that's enough for them. They can easily pull off a tarpat, a 1929 Hebron massacre. That's what everybody was expecting right after the Gaza massacre. Every single Jew in Israel is a soldier protecting a settlement in uniform. But the Arabs don't have to do it tomorrow. They can wait. Time's on their side. They can wait another year and suddenly we'll hear about another massacre of some yeshuv, God forbid. But the point is more and more the settlements are realizing that they got to be self-sufficient. And when I think about it, this really plays into what Rabbi Benjamin Kahana urged at the end of his life, that the settlements have to be independent. And he went as so far to say that if necessary, let the IDF leave because their hands are tied. And I want to read part of a letter that Rabbi Benjamin Zefkana, he planned to circulate amongst the settlers right before he was killed. And this is directly after the Intifada in the year 2000, when the Arabs overran Kever Yosef in Shechem, and many, many Jews were killed, including Hillel Lieberman and other tzaddikim. 
And at the funeral of Hillel Lieberman in Yitzhar, he read this letter, and I want to read just parts of it, to my dear friends and brothers living in the mountains of Judean Samaria. The situation currently facing us demands that we courageously reassess that we have believed until now. The issue before us is no longer just a fundamental problem of Chilul Hashem and Jewish humiliation. That is, and this is me speaking now, the very fact that Jews are getting stoned and killed, that's a Chilul Hashem and a humiliation. But he says, he said, it's not just that, but now it's more a simple issue of straightforward security that involves each and every one of us. Living in the mountains of Judea and Samaria, we are truly fortunate that we compromise a community that, for the overwhelming majority, fears its God, loves its nation, and is prepared for self-sacrifice. The situation today is difficult and complex. On the one hand, we are fully prepared, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, to retain Jewish control over the Jewish homeland, maybe more prepared than any other sector in Israeli society. That is, he's talking about the settlers. On the other hand, the IDF is being exposed with all the goodwill as a confused body lacking direction and ideology, and above all, with no faith in God. And I'm not going to read the whole letter, but what Rabbi Benjamin Kahana suggests is that, that the settlers in Judea and Samaria start to form a united leadership that's independent of the dictates of the state of Israel, that they should politely request from the government of Israel, hand over the land to us, just like you left Gush Katif, and just like you left Kevi Yosef, hand it over to us. And let me read some more. By the grace of God, here in these mountains, we have wonderful youth and highly trained military personnel whose morale is high. They will gladly accept this responsibility upon themselves. Ultimately, they will take to their duties enthusiastically. And what's more important, with faith in the God who gave us this land. Just leave us the arms. And even if not, we will nevertheless succeed. And Hashem will be our strength. Without the slightest doubt, the Arab denizens will be terrified merely at hearing the news that authority here will no longer rest with the shackled IDF, which has for so long been the punching bag of Arab hooligans. Rather, those monstrous settlers, and thank God the Arab media portray us as the devil incarnate, if not worse, they will now take charge. Without the slightest of doubt, such a step would clear the air. There will be a complete about face. This news will, for the first time in too many years, attract youths in their hundreds, at least, who will come here to help. At long last, there will be a genuine Yeshuvah Aretz, a settling of the land and the beginning of Jewish sovereignty over the land of Israel. This will put an end to the confused, stammering, and steadfast search for ways of handing over the land to the enemies of God. Can we even begin to imagine the inspiration that this earth-shaking news would give to so many Jews, both secular and religious, in Israel and abroad? It's been far too long since we experienced the deep and stirring feeling of Jewish national pride. And I'll just read the final paragraph. None of this entails separating ourselves from society. To the contrary, we will remain part of Israeli society, willing at a moment's notice to rejoin by agreement that state which until now has refused for 33 years to annex us. We speak here not of separation, but of additional Jewish sovereignty over a part of the land of Israel, which has been too long abandoned. We act for the good of the nation of Israel, for the good of the state of Israel, for the sake of our family safety. Above all, we act for the sake of Kiddush Hashem, the sanctification of the name of God, and eradicating its desecration until the hour of final redemption comes. Now, what I want to say is that what he's planning here is actually happening organically, that the settlers do realize that they have to take security 
and their lives into their own hands. If not, we're not going to be here anymore because we're going to be dead. Now, at the time, Binyamin Kahana wrote this over 23 years ago. It was difficult for a lot of Jews to grasp it. But again, I see it happening naturally that in order to protect our settlements and our families, we have to think this way. Binyamin Kahana mentions here that the Jewish youth here have a lot more morale and motivation and ideology than most of the nation when it comes to serving and they make the best soldiers. And the fact is, when you see the casualties in this Gaza war, a disproportionate number of the fallen soldiers come from the settlements. I mean, just look, you see, you see that these boys are from settlements in Yehuda and Shamron. And the fact is the best soldiers in the IDF are the settlers. And I'll tell you why. A kid who grows up on a yeshuv, he's a lot more hands-on, right? He's, um, you know, he grew up in the shetach, you know, building stuff and playing outside. Where the average Tel Aviv kid, he's on his computer all day. When he gets into the army, he's not as equipped as a kid who grew up in Yudan Samaria. I mean, if you just go in a settlement and look at the kids running around barefoot on the rocks and they're all tanned by the sun, it's a different kind of uh, childhood he goes through and it's a different kind of upbringing. He's just outside a lot, hands-on. I mean, just on a simple level, if you get a flat tire and you need help, there's a good chance that a kid from Tel Aviv won't be able to help you much. But if he's a settler or a hilltop youth, he can really help you change your tire. So when they go into the army, you see that the kids from the settlements are less spoiled, physically stronger, and the religious ones are more spiritually motivated because they're fighting for the land and the Torah and God, and they see it as a national mission. And at the end of the day, motivation is everything. You know, it used to be that the kibbutzim turned out the best soldiers because the early kibbutznikim, they were very idealistic. You know, the average kibbutznik came from Europe, made Aliyah to the land of Israel from Europe, and he knew what anti-Semitism was. He experienced it, and he wanted to build a Jewish state, a haven, a haven for Jews. So Jews will no longer be a punching bag, right? Like they were for 2,000 years in the exile, and he knew the importance of a Jewish state. But the thing is, they were socialists more than they were Jews. A matter of fact, they were into the socialist ideology they got from Europe. And that's why they built kibbutzim. They're going to show how to really do socialism. Never mind that these kibbutzim that are supposedly under socialist philosophy, examples of true socialism, at the end, most of them became private enterprises. They were run just like General Motors, right? They were making money and making profit like any other private capitalist society. But that's not the point. The point is what happened to the kids of these kibbutzniks. So at the beginning, those kids were the best soldiers, like we said, but little by little, because they took Judaism out of the equation and the founders of the kibbutzim, again, were not religious, they were Zionists, but took the Torah out of it. Well, you can't pass that down to the next generation properly because little by little, without Judaism, there is no Zionism. The grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of those pioneers of the kibbutzim, they were born in Israel. So they don't appreciate the fact that Israel is a haven after being persecuted in the exile. They never experienced that like their parents did. So they just grow up in a kibbutz and they already dropped the Judaism, but eventually they'll drop the Zionism because they don't have that same feeling their parents had of how it's important to have a Jewish state and a haven for Jews, etc. So why not marry that Swedish volunteer on your kibbutz and live in Europe? And that's what happened. And so today, it's the mitnachlim, you know, it's the settlers who have become the, the best motivated idea of soldiers. And by the way, it used to be in Israel in the 50s and the early 60s, kibbutznikim used to be called settlers. 
So that's kind of ironic. Now, one of these settlers who fell in Gaza, his name is Yedidia Eliyahu, who fell on November 3rd in Gaza. And he was from the settlement of Kaneshamron. And I want you to hear some words that were said when the brother of Yedidia, his name was Eliav Eliyahu, he's from Yitzhar, and he eulogized his brother. And he said a lot of beautiful things about his brother, how righteous he was, how connected he was to the land of Israel, how spiritual he was. He mentioned that his brother Yedidia didn't agree with the IDF policy in Gaza. He knew how ridiculous it was that the IDF generals were so concerned with the Arab civilians. But he went anyway into Gaza because he wanted to be with his people. He wanted to be with his nation in time of need. To fight, even though you're fighting with one hand behind your back, he felt he had to be out there. So let's listen to the words of Eliav Eliyahu speaking about his brother Yedidia, who fell in Gaza. And I'm playing just the last two minutes of his eulogy. He's already spoken about his brother's great Midot. On a personal level, he spoke about his brother Yedidia. Now here he speaks of the need for revenge, to avenge the death of his brother. So listen. We promise that we'll do everything we can do to avenge your blood. To take vengeance on every tear that mom and dad cried over you. Vengeance for every time your child called for you, for every time your child said, where's Abba? We're going to take revenge for every family gathering that you won't be there. We're going to take vengeance for what those Nazis did to our brothers and sisters. We know that God brought this upon us so the nation of Israel will wake up and understand that we have to throw out the Arabs. The nation of Israel has woken up. They realize that the Arabs are our enemies. Even though the government still distinguishes between Arabs, as if they didn't see the mobs of Arabs gleeful at what happened on October 7th. And we have to fight this war in Gaza without endangering the soldiers' lives, without having them to enter houses. Before going in there, we should starve them, turn off the electricity, turn off the water. And then when they're half dead, that's when the soldiers should enter. Gas them out of the tunnels. Do a holocaust to them as they did to us. We know that our 
למרות הדמיונות שיש כאלה שחושבים שיש הבדל בין סוגי ערבים, הערבים של עזה זה לא ערבים של איו"ש, ערבים של מזרח ירושלים זה לא ערבים של ג'יהאד האיסלאמי. The nation is still healthy. The people of Israel, they know how to defeat their enemies. Even though there are still Jews who think there's a difference between the Arabs of Gaza and the Arabs of Samaria and the Arabs of Jerusalem. They're all the same. The Arabs of Umar Fakhim, the Arabs of Jerusalem, those within the Green Line, we have to throw them all out. We should warn them to leave right now, before it's too late, before they get hurt. We cry out to Hashem. We want redemption. We want the revival of the dead. We want to build the Holy Temple. We want vengeance, big time. That was Eliav Eliyahu from Yitzhar speaking at his brother's funeral. And think how special he is that for him, it's not just about the personal grief. He's talking about the nation of Israel, Hashem's honor, the nation of Israel's honor. He has a message to the entire nation of Israel here. That's a Jew. That's a Jewish hero. Moving on now, Yonatan Pollard was interviewed for about an hour. And um, I suggest anybody who wants to be in the know to listen to Jonathan Polo and what he has to say because uh, he's saying the truth and he's giving answers so much so that you're not going to hear him on mainstream media ever. You're going to have to listen to shows like this if you want to hear Jonathan Pollard. And one of the things he mentioned in this interview was that he was uh, in the war room, not recently, a long time ago. He was in the war room with, with the Israeli generals and he gave suggestions of what he thinks should be done. And there was a big picture up on the screen of a funeral of a Hamas leader. And at that funeral, there were hundreds and hundreds of Hamas operatives. And Pollard was pointing them out and everybody knew that was true. And Jonathan Pollard suggested that you got to bomb that funeral procession and, you'll, and you could take out the whole high command of the Hamas. And then Jonathan Pollard explained what their reaction was. He said that Benny Gantz pointed to that screen of that funeral and in that picture of that Hamas funeral procession, there was a young Arab boy on the shoulders of his father. And Gantz looked at Pollard, pointed to that little boy, and he said, you see that? You see that young boy? And Pollard says, you mean the one with the kafia and the toy kalachnikov he's holding? And Gantz said, yeah. He said, yeah, that's why we can't do it, because we'll be killing innocent Gazan children. Pollard answered him back with something like, oh, so it's better that Jewish children get killed? But point is this, Jonathan Pollard wanted to tell us is that war room today where you have Gantz and Bibi and Yoav Gallant, these people have twisted ethics. They really do believe in purity of arms. And Bibi's no better because if Bibi wanted to, he could have put together an expanded coalition and a war room with Avigdor Lieberman, who is for bombing the hell out of Gaza. No, he took Gantz. And so with people like that, you know, leading this war, not to mention the American generals who are also sitting in that war room, which is an absolute tragedy, it's really hard to figure how we're going to win this thing. And they thought it would be a good idea to tell a little story about a real general, a Jewish army general that knew what he was doing, who understood how to fight a war. And his name is Yoav Ben Surya. Yoav Ben Surya was the captain of the host of King David. 
and I want to read a story about him. It's a story that appears in any children's storybook about King David and his men. This specific story is based on Midrashim, but there's plenty of stuff in the Bible itself that testified to Yoav's fighting prowess. But this is a story that not many people know. So I'm going to read the story so we can, uh, so we can learn a little about a true Jewish hero. So it goes like this. Yoav Surya was King David's captain of the host. Gibor Chayel, he was courageous. Gadol Torah, he was a great Torah scholar. And he was righteous and he was a Baal Chesed. That is, he did a lot of acts of kindness. And it was because of Yoav ben Surya, David's captain of the host, that King David was able to be an effective leader because it allowed for King David to have the quiet from his enemies. So David was able to do Mishpat Utztaka. He was able to be a great king and judge his people because he had Yoav out there leading the wars. Yoav was victorious in many battles and he would bring back the spoil of wars to the people. Okay, so after giving a general background on who Yoav was, the story now focuses on a particular war that Yoav fought as David's commander-in-chief. Now, before telling the story, just a warning, it gets kind of gory and gruesome. So if you're a little bit squeamish about those things, you don't have to listen. It's just that wars in the Bible days, they were kind of brutal and savage. So um, just giving you a warning before I tell the story. One particular war that showed his great courage was the war against Edom. The land of Edom was very heavily fortified with a giant wall. It was impossible to penetrate. And by the way, in those days, during the first temple period, they didn't have the technology to break through a big wall like that. In the second temple period, in the Roman times, you had all kinds of machines and stuff, but these walls were impenetrable. Okay, so Yoav has to deal with that. He's trying to attack Edom and he got this giant wall there. For six months, the Jewish soldiers, led by Yoav, were surrounding that wall, and they weren't able to penetrate it. And so because such a long time passed, the soldiers came to Yoav and they said, listen, it's enough already. How much can we wait here? We can't walk around this wall forever. For six months, we're outside our homes. We're away from our families. So please, Yoav, give us permission to return home. But Yoav couldn't abandon the battle. And he said to his men, I understand what you're saying. You're right, but just listen to what I say. I don't want to go back to the king with nothing in my hand, like just to come back empty. It will sadden the king. And it hurts our deterrent factor because if the other nations hear that we weren't able to overcome these Edomites, they'll all come against us. So I have an idea. Throw me over the wall, okay? (laughs) Chuck me over the wall and wait for me 40 days. If after 40 days you see blood seeping under the wall outside, that's a sign that I won. And then you can just charge the gates and enter. But if you don't see any blood, that means they killed me. And so I give you permission to go home. Okay. Oh, this is great. Okay. So the soldiers felt really bad about it. They didn't want to do it, but okay, they're going to listen to their commander. What do they do? I'm translating this from the Hebrew as I go along. They took a catapult and instead of a rock inside the catapult, they put Yoav in there and they shot him. They shot him. <laughs> they shot him from a catapult over the wall. And he landed in the backyard of an Edomite widower, her daughter found Yoav on the ground in her yard, wounded, and she took him in. She carefully washed his wounds because he was hurt pretty badly from the fall. She put oil on his body and she was able to revive him. Yoav slowly recovered from his injuries. And they asked him, who are you? How did you get into our backyard? 
Okay, so the CEO is wearing the clothes of a Jewish soldier. So he has to come up with a good excuse. And this is what he says. I am an Edomite, answered Yoav. I was hanging out amongst the Jewish soldiers as a spy. And when they discovered that I'm not a Jew, I'm an Edomite, they threw me out of there and they threw me over the wall. And that's how I got here. And so with your permission, let me just stay here a little more and let me get better. And I'll leave until I feel better. I'll thank you very much if you can do that. And here, take some money for your trouble. So they agreed and Yoav stayed there for 10 days. And by that time he felt much better and he went out. They gave him something new to wear because his clothes were all torn from the fall. And now he looked like one of the Edomites walking around their town. So Yoav is now walking around in the marketplace and he's watching the inhabitants. And what does he see? He sees a napach. What's a napach? Like a, a blacksmith, somebody who you know sharpens tools. I think it's a blacksmith, right? So Yoav's sword was broken, right? It was broken from the fall because when he was catapulted over the wall, he fell on his side and he broke his sword and he wants to fix his sword. So he approaches the blacksmith and he asks the blacksmith, he says, you see this sword, this broken sword? I want you to make me a sword just like this. The Edomite blacksmith looked at the sword and he was amazed. He never saw anything like that in his life, a sword that big. So three times the blacksmith, he made a sword for Yoav. And each time he made one, Yoav would take it and he would fling it and flick his wrist with it. He would kind of try it out and the handle would break. Finally, on the fourth try, the blacksmith, he made a great sword, a strong sword. Yoav tried it out. It didn't break in his hand. He said, beautiful. This is what I'm looking for. So Yoav, he took the sword, he paid for it, and he looked straight in the eye of the blacksmith and he asked him, who do you think I should kill with this sword first? In other words, there's something called like a Chanukat Cherev, you know, initiation for the sword. Who should be the first one to be killed with it? And the blacksmith said, without hesitation, Yoav ben Suria, David's captain of the host. And Yoav answered him, maybe I'm Yoav ben Suria." And he went out into the streets and killed everybody he saw. And then he got to the gate of the city. He slew Edomites left and right. And when the Jewish soldiers outside the walls saw the blood that was flowing under the gate, they knew that the God of Israel was with their commander. And so the Jewish soldiers enter, they conquer Edom, and we live happily ever after. So I bring this story in all its gory details to show that you're supposed to win because you know what they'll do if they win. They'll do stuff like they did on October 7th. That's what they're going to do. But the sad thing is, there's no Yoav ben Surya today. We don't have Yoav ben Surya as the captain of our host. Okay, that's it for me. And if you want to hear more Bible stories, right from the source, listen to my Bible classes, Lenny Goldberg's Bible classes. For more on Yoav ben Surya and David Amelech and King Saul and, and Binayahu ben Yehoiada, those are real Jewish heroes because we're sick of Gantz and Bibi and Gallant. You know, let's refresh our minds and our souls by learning the Bible and finding out how a Jew is supposed to fight. What are Jewish war ethics after all? Is it dropping leaflets over Gaza or supplying the Hamas Nazis with fuel? Or is it something more like what Yoav ben Surya did to the nation of Edom? Well, I'm putting my money on the Bible because, you know, it stood the test of time. I think the Bible has proven itself. And that's because it is objective truth. Because you know why? Because the author of the Bible, the author is God. See you next week.